Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Kristen. And I'm Caroline. And Caroline, I have a feeling that some listeners probably saw the title of this episode, Is PMS a Myth? Mm -hmm. And thought, what? Are C&C off their rockers? (laughs) How could that possibly be a myth? Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I know that I definitely experience various symptoms every month, depending. I mean, it depends, but there's a lot more than just, are you crampy? Yeah. Crampy and cranky. Yeah. Uh, that's us. That's actually what CNC stands for. Crampy and cranky. Yep. Some days, you know, <laughs> let's be honest. It happens. Yep. We have our CNC kinds of days, <laughs> just like the next gal or guy. Or guy. Yeah. Um, well, before we get into the potential mythology of PMS, which I know people are probably on the edge of their seats right. to find out about, let's start with some basic facts about what PMS is. For starters, it stands for premenstrual syndrome. Right. And this whole syndrome deal refers to a wide range of symptoms that start during the second half of your menstrual cycle. That's 14 days or more after the first day of your last menstrual period. And they tend to go away a day or two after your period starts. And it comes with all sorts of delightful symptoms. The National Institutes of Health has such a long, long list of potential symptoms associated with it, including common things such as mood swings, breast tenderness, food cravings, fatigue, irritability, depression, just general C&C kinds of feelings. (laughs) Right. And in severe cases, the levels of mood disruption are similar to those of people with major depression, actually. And women with premenstrual dysphoric disorder or PMDD appear to be at a greater risk of developing major depression. And we will dive a little bit deeper into PMDD later on in the episode. But just talking about PMS in general, how many women does it affect? Pretty much all people who have periods, including women and trans men. But even the stats for that can be all over the place because by some estimates, three of every four menstruating person experiences some form of PMS. But then when it comes to the types of symptoms, the intensity, the frequency, things really start to vary. For instance, there was a 1981 paper trying to quantify PMS, and it found that uh, some degree of temporary, quote, mental or physical incapacitation is experienced by 20 to 40 percent of women, while 70 to 90 percent experience recurrent premenstrual symptoms. So, Who knows where you might fall in that? Right. And breaking it down further, the American Congress of Obstetricians and Gynecologists says that probably somewhere around 85 percent of women experience at least one symptom. And we listed a bunch of them and there are a whole bunch more. I mean, everything from mood stuff to physical pain to acne. There's like a ton of stuff, as a lot of you might guess, associated with PMS. But again, the symptoms Experience will vary from person to person and from cycle to cycle, which is partially why the National Institutes of Health and plenty of other sources explicitly state that 
the exact cause of PMS has not been identified. Which is kind of mind blowing. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I mean, like I'm a woman with a uterus and ovaries and I have a period. And so I have experienced premenstrual symptoms. Um, but I thought for sure, I thought for sure there would be more because, you know, there's a lot of talk about hormones and this and that. And it's not, uh, you know, it's obviously not that hormones don't play a role in premenstrual symptoms, but the fact that nobody has nailed this sucker down as far as like this, this is why this is what causes it. And this is what makes it bad or not as bad or whatever. It's kind of like I just felt doubly disappointed because it's kind of the same thing with my migraines. Like doctors are like, yeah. A lot of people get migraines. We're not really sure. Well, and it's also, PMS is also such almost an indoctrinated part of the menstrual cycle that we learn about as young girls, probably Mm -hmm. even before we get our first period. We know that there's also this other set of things that might come with it even before the bleeding begins. And it's called PMS. And yet... Yeah, doctors are still kind of scratching their heads because, I mean, they have some decent guesses. Obviously, it has to do with hormonal fluctuations, particularly varying levels of progesterone and estrogen over our cycles, which, you know, you hear the average 28 days, although, again, not everybody's menstrual cycle is 28 days. Um, it might also have to do with levels of serotonin changing, depression, stress, dietary habits, exercise, so many environmental and biological factors that could maybe contribute to it. Yeah, and not to mention that your hormones and your serotonin are connected because research has shown that falling levels of hormones, mainly estrogen, during the luteal phase or the premenstrual phase might affect the activity of central serotonin in people who are susceptible to experiencing these symptoms. And serotonin is often referred to as the happy hormone, you know, the hormone that makes us feel great. So maybe if the serotonin drops, then you get a case of the CNCs. Which I really, I realize that maybe I should stop just referring to PMS as the CNCs because it, it could possibly sour people toward us. us. Yeah, we don't want to be maybe too closely aligned with PMS. Well, although that could make for a funny t-shirt. That's true. This is true. Lots of, lots of ideas happening here. Um, but in the meantime, back to PMS and the science of it. It is so widespread though. Some wonder whether there is an evolutionary explanation to this. And we read a paper about this called Were There Evolutionary Advantages to PMS by Michael R. Gillings, published in 2014 in the journal Evolutionary Applications. And Gillings suspects that, yes, there has to have been some kind of advantage to this. Right, because after all, as he points out, PMS does have certain important attributes to it, which include a high heritability. So he's saying that, you know, if people in your family, specifically women, if women in your family had, you know, terrible PMS, for instance, then you might be more likely to suffer those symptoms. He also talks about gene variants associated with PMS being identified But his main point that he gets to is this whole issue of animosity during PMS being preferentially directed at a woman's current partner that may lend itself to increasing the chances of finding a new partner. And it's like, huh, what? Your period makes you go search for a new partner? Not exactly. Well, so he he thinks that perhaps... 
PMS is a vehicle that was used to help women dissolve infertile relationships because obviously if you get your period, it usually, usually means you aren't pregnant. And so if a relationship is not resulting in pregnancy, especially when we're talking about way back when, when there was so much more focus simply on procreation, that if that wasn't happening, then perhaps PMS sort of prompts this hostility toward your current partner and th- to then drive a wedge between this relationship and send you off searching for someone else. <laughs> so there's that. Yeah, but I mean, you know, there are a bajillion women out there on birth control who are controlling their reproductive path and choices and, you know, still having periods on their birth control. So, well, that's something that he points out in terms of the possible theoretical prior function of PMS in the days long before birth control and how today without that possible function at work, because we have birth control and more control over our reproductive cycles that it's not it's not as applicable, obviously, mm-hmm. today. Yeah. Well, also under this hypothesis, PMS is not a syndrome per se, but, quote, a normal consequence of adaptive strategies developed during our evolutionary history. So, in other words, the next time someone m- maybe uh, makes a makes a joke at you about being all PMSy, mm-hmm. you can come back with, hey, listen, Buster, this is just a normal consequence of adaptive strategies developed during our evolutionary history. All right? That's right. So and then back off. Drop your imaginary microphone or your tampon. Use a tampon Drink. as a stand-off. Flick a tampon in his or her face and walk away. That's right. And then apologize. Because yeah. that might be rude. But, so we've established, Caroline, that PMS exists. Mm-hmm. They're clearly symptoms. You and I have both experienced them. Mm-hmm. A lot of our listeners have probably experienced them. So why is the title of this episode is PMS a myth? Why are we calling it a myth? Perhaps. Well, it's that whole keyword premenstrual that has a lot to do with it. There was a 2012 literature review from researchers at the University of Toronto called Mood and the Minstrel Cycle, a review of prospective data studies, which called the whole mood aspect of PMS into question. And it actually got a lot of people riled up because basically they looked at a ton of studies and did not find a whole huge amount of evidence supporting that just in the premenstrual period, you're more likely to definitely have mood disorders. This was then interpreted by a lot of people, bloggers, journalists, whatever, to mean that it doesn't exist and you're all crazy. Right. So a lot of, as happens a lot these days, actually, uh, when it comes to reporting on study findings, there was a lot of misinterpretation. So... Uh, one of the authors speaking to The Atlantic clarified that the whole point of this analysis of the 41 studies they looked at, the whole point was not to show that menstrual mood shifts don't exist at all or that the physical symptoms don't exist. They actually weren't even looking at the physical symptoms, but rather to examine that connection, like you said, between menstruation and mood, because She said, the author speaking to The Atlantic said, quote, the whole PMS notion serves to keep women non-irritable, sweet, 
and compliant the rest of the time. Because out of those 41 studies that they looked at, only seven found any sort of link between negative moods and the premenstrual phase. And so the the study authors concluded that the body of research so far has failed to provide clear evidence in support of the existence of a specific premenstrual negative mood syndrome. And yet we have this widespread belief that, of course, during in the days leading up to your period, you will be completely emotionally unstable and cry a lot. Right, which is going to lead us eventually in this episode to talk a lot more about how those assumptions and stereotypes have been used against women. And this particular study is just one that questions the validity of PMS as we think about it today. So let's take a look kind of through history at how our perception of menstruation in general and premenstrual symptoms in particular have evolved. So for a little PMS history, let us start in 1931, the year of PMS. Sounds amazing. Not only was the Great Depression on, but this was also the year that PMS first happened. Uh, so the term premenstrual tension, as opposed to premenstrual sy- syndrome, was first coined by Dr. Robert T. Frank in 1931 in a paper he presented to the New York Academy of Medicine in which he described this premenstrual tension as intense personal suffering that goes along with varying degrees of discomfort and women having a feeling like jumping out of our skin. Yeah, he definitely, he and several other researchers in this era wanted to look at what was going on. And it, it is interesting to keep in mind the context of, of all of these things happening, because one major thing that a lot of people have focused on when it comes to looking at PMS and talking about menstruation and reproductive health is sort of the pairing of the way we talk about it and the way we think about it and also what's going on in the world at the time. And so Frank was writing after the Depression when a lot of women's post World War One gains, leaving the home, getting jobs, etc., were slipping, and things were kind of going back to quote unquote normal. And so it was a time of a lot of social anxiety, and it seems like a lot of scholarship about women tends to come out in periods of social anxiety. But Frank's prescription for severe cases of this premenstrual tension was either complete removal or radiation therapy of the ovaries to decrease estrogen production and therefore restore order in the woman's life and then therefore in her environment. Well, what's interesting, too, is that in this same year, in 1931, psychoanalyst Karen Horney publishes a paper about, quote, premenstrual mood swings linked to strongly rejected fantasies of motherhood. So talk about, you know, these kinds of social anxieties and the background of that and how this is influencing research on women. Because as Michael Stolberg points out in the paper he wrote about this called The Monthly Malady, A History of Premenstrual Suffering, uh, some of the, the background to these discussions that Horney and Frank were initiating about uh, this premenstrual tension, these premenstrual mood swings, were the fact that there were more women entering the workforce. And along with that, there was growing concern over the potentially negative effects of menstruation on productivity. Mm-hmm. And fast forward to today, and you hear similar things in terms of, oh, well, if a female is in the White House, then what happens if she gets a period? And 
all hell breaks loose. That's right. I know. Well, but I mean, that's the same thing that's been going on forever. I mean, you know, sure. Now we're worried about a, a female president getting her period and, and will she get all hormonal and whatever. But, you know, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years ago, people were still freaking out about women's uh, reproductive systems having some crazy effect on their mental stability. I mean, if we talk about the wandering womb and hysteria and everything, but we'll get to that. But in this era, in the 30s, there is an increasing focus on psychology and women are starting to complain to their doctors more than just about physical pain and physical discomfort and fatigue. They're also starting to complain to their doctors about psychological symptoms. And that leads us to Dr. Katerina Dalton, who in 1953 coins premenstrual syndrome, which has the same symptoms as what uh, Robert Frank described earlier. But with the whole incorporation of the word syndrome, it basically suggests an underlying disease. It tells women and whoever else is listening that you don't have to accept the discomfort that you're going through and that medicine can help out. Kind of seems like a positive, but it's also pathologizing something natural that happens to women every month. And what's ironic is that by the 1990s, this same Dr. Katerina Dalton is going to talk about how she really considers PMS a misnomer because symptoms aren't restricted to that period right before menstruation. It's not just limited to the luteal phase. But you mentioned, Caroline, that pathologizing menstruation in this way is clearly is not something, though, that started in 1931. And we've talked many times on the podcast about hysteria and the wandering womb and all of these more ancient theories about menstruation, because before the 20th century, doctors really did not understand the hormonal influences, partially because the medical technology wasn't there. And so we have all of these different phases that the concept of menstruation goes through, starting, of course, with Hippocrates and hysteria and the wandering womb. And Hippocrates, um, he alludes actually to PMS he refers to these, uh, what we would think of today as menstrual related mood swings, but attributed them to hysteria and uteral movement, that wandering womb, which was supposed to correspond to the phases of the moon. So this is all tying into why, for instance, we call menstruation your moon cycle. Uh-huh. Well, yeah, he also talked about how a woman with a uterus containing retained menstrual blood, which pressed on the heart and diaphragm, was inclined to various mental derangements. But it's not like Hippocrates was alone in this. I mean, the ancient Egyptians thought that like the control center of your body was not your brain, but your heart. And so if you had a bunch of menstrual blood stored up in there and it's pressing on your heart, then of course you're going to act like a crazy person. Yeah. And once we get into the Renaissance, menstruation is thought of as this cathartic process of women getting rid of that buildup of excrement semen and what they called peccant Matter. And this idea lasted until the mid 17th century. And that kind of idea, in a similar way, still persists today in the idea of, oh, you need to have your period because it's cleansing. It's cleaning you out of all of that endometrial tissue that 
is building up. Just ties into people thinking that women's reproductive organs are gross and dirty. Yeah, um, but also in the Renaissance, PMS syndromes were attributed to a backup of, quote, a gross, feculent, condensed, and clotted, and at the same time, also sharp blood. Yeah, those sharp bloods. What is, I mean, what does that mean? I don't know, but Carolina does not good. Does it not sound good at does all. Does not sound good. Well, so in the 17th century, there was a slightly different perspective. It was the plethora model of menstruation. Basically, that women bleed to prevent plethora, which was defined as an overloading and excessive dilation of the vessels and the body in general with blood. So not necessarily like cleansing yourself, but just flushing yourself out, getting rid of all that blood that's been building up and causing pressure in your body. I'm just imagining it's like a monthly uh, toilet flushing. (laughs) Delightful. Uh, Well, moving into the 18th century, the plethora model is replaced by what's called the fermentation model. Mm. So things are still... Things are still sharp and gross in there. (laughs) But the fermentation model explained... Menstrual bleeding as a result of a, quote, fermentation or effervescence, mm-hmm. hello, by a menstrual ferment or a female semen. This is also when they think that, that women have um, a semen that contributes to reproduction as well. But I just want to say on a side note that reading about the effervescence just makes me think about us having, it's really just like a belly full of LaCroix building up. <laughs> I was going to say Fresca. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Clearly Canadian. Um. (laughs) But this fermentation model, though, also explains more of the sudden onset of PMS symptoms coming on right before your menstruation, your bleeding, as opposed to plethora, which, by that theory, would have been a gradual buildup of discomfort over the entire month. Interesting. And this theory also uh, does its part to explain breast swelling and tenderness because they figured that it was involved in the sympathetic influence of the uterus causing said breast swelling. But by far my most favorite menstrual theory of the 1700s uh, came when they were trying to figure out this connection between menstruation and mood. And of course, they assumed that with this whole fermentation, the, the, <laughs> the, the LaCroix in your belly and whatnot, that it would lead to women's psychological instability for a period of time. Um, and they refer to it as nervous overexcitation, mood changes, getting the vapors. Ooh. And at worst, though, and this was probably like ye old PMDD, mm-hmm. those women experienced what was called menstrual folly. Oh, menstrual folly. That just sounds like you're making like it's causing you to make terrible life decisions, not that you're necessarily experiencing pain or anything. I, I mean, I would vote for calling it your menstrual folly <laughs> to be the new period, because, I mean, it, there's also a bit of whimsy in that, too. Yeah. Well, I'm just going through my menstrual folly. Like you're skipping with ribbons. Mm-hmm. And in the 19th century, menstruation was described as an orgasm of the uterus. And Stolberg, citing a physician of the time, talks about how the uterus, due to its overwhelming sympathetic influence on the nervous system, subjected women to its unrelenting tyranny. That sounds awful. The unrelenting tyranny of your floating hysterical uterus. Yeah. I mean, with things like... 
uh, peccant matter and menstrual folly and, and vapors. La- and LaCroix. And plethora. Good old mixed drink in there. Uh, the uterus is quite a tyrant by this point. Uh, but it was also, too, in the 19th century, as Stolberg talks about, where you have the development of lifestyle theories associated with um, the aggressiveness or intensity of PMS symptoms, particularly wealthy urban women who ate lots of food, did not have children, and indulged in, quote, lascivious novels, music, theater, and painting, mm. were assumed to be the most susceptible to PMS-like symptoms. And I have a feeling that it's really, though, that delay of motherhood and mm-hmm. possibly marriage that would cast a, the brightest spotlight on you. Well, right, because the Greeks thought, I mean, this is, it's so interesting to see the the direct correlation here, but like, I mean, the Greeks thought that if you were experiencing terrible PMS or what we would think of as PMDD symptoms, then you needed to have sex and get yourself pregnant. But before that, you would obviously have to get married. And so that kind of fixed you know, that was two birds with one stone, right? In their, in their view at the time that yes, the, the sexual intercourse would help ease your symptoms and you wouldn't be quite so moody and crazy, but you would also be happily married with children and society would all be as it should. Well, and then if you fast forward to 1931, you have psychoanalyst Karen Horney linking premenstrual mood swings to motherhood constructs and essentially us acting out against that. All of those social anxieties, Kristen. That's right. But yeah, I mean, along with this lifestyle theory that developed in the 19th century, I mean, people were really concerned, not just about women, not just in general, but like people were really concerned about the effect that cities, modernization and overpopulation were having on people. They really thought that living in cities was interfering with our animal natures. And it just so happened that they assumed that the effects of this were worse for women because, of course, our sanity was consistently linked to our reproductive system. So if we're having any sort of premenstrual symptoms and things like that, then obviously we're just feeling the effects of the city's overpopulation worse than men are. And then moving into the 20th century, things do start to get a little more scientific because, for instance, in the 1920s, scientists isolate sex hormones, which then allows for deeper understanding of at least how menstruation works and all the different phases and how that's linked to reproduction and pregnancy. But nonetheless, by this time, we have centuries worth of this buildup of this association between menstruation and women's psychological instability and moodiness and irritability. And in writing about this, uh, Michael Stolberg points out how this whole time women have been describing these symptoms, or at least wealthy women who could afford to go to doctors. They had been describing these kinds of PMS symptoms, but like in terms of the physical stuff and even some of the psychological symptoms. But the question then is, how much of it, though, is sort of it's the chicken and the egg of how much is it just assumed that we're going to feel awful and we automatically link irritability and moodiness to menstruation and how much of that might just be irritability 
and moodiness possibly brought on by other things. Yeah, just like life. 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 Life <laughs> making us moody. Well, we're going to get way more into basically modern psychology and different groups take on the constructs of PMS when we get right back from a quick break. So when we left off, we had just walked through a pretty, pretty long medical history of the concepts of menstruation and PMS-like symptoms. And a lot of it explains why for so long women have considered periods both a blessing and a curse. Because on the one hand, there's always been that idea that we need to have one because it is cathartic. It's cleansing. Our bodies need to get rid of that excess fluid, excess in quotes, fluid and endometrial tissue. But at the same time, the other side of that coin is a curse because of the assumed physical um, discomforts along with it, but also this question of the psychological instability that that purging process might bring along with it. So when we get into like the social constructs of what PMS means to people, women in particular have construed PMS as both a positive construct and a negative one because, hey, now that we know more about the endocrinology, about our hormones, about the science of it, it's a good thing and it should be taken seriously. This is a thing that women experience and we need to learn more about it. On the flip side of that, however, the more we know about PMS and the more it's tied to mood in some people's minds, the more it is used to discount women and what we say. And, oh, she's just PMSing. She's moody. She's out of her mind. We shouldn't listen to her. Well, and also think about how we euphemistically refer to our periods. It is, you know, it's the curse. It's your monthly malady. It's all we we tend to describe it in negative terms. It's your uninvited guest. It's Aunt Flo. And does anyone ever like ask her to stay? No, she probably brings a fruitcake. She probably does bring a fruitcake. And because of this background of pathologizing PMS in the sense of uh, assuming, making those assumptions about how it renders women unstable and unreliable, some cultural anthropologists have called it a Western construct, which, quote, get ready for this, legitimizes the temporary and politically ineffective expression of suppressed irritation, rage, or similarly negative unfeminine feelings, which result in particular from the status and condition of women in late industrial society. Wow. Yeah. Well, so basically, a lot of people have claimed that women and men have claimed that PMS is kind of an excuse to let women kind of let loose in terms of not being that prim and proper, quiet, well-behaved woman anymore, that it's a monthly excuse to actually feel feelings. And, you know, like I said, that's been used in both a positive and a negative direction. Right. Because on the positive end, uh, when it comes to feminist critiques of PMS research and this potential uh, sort of cultural construct that part of it might have become, on the one hand, particularly in the 70s and 80s, Feminists were among the biggest champions of conducting more research to find out that question of what's actually going on. Why does it happen? And particularly for women who have more PMDD like symptoms, what is going on? And hey, while we're at it, let's reduce this 
stigma mm-hmm. and yet calling into question that possible side of it, too, that's kind of the most public-facing side of menstruation, the, the side that we talk about the most, not the actual biological part that includes bleeding and how it affects our bodies, but more just making jokes about PMS. That's what's okay to talk about, this whole potentially socially constructed part of it. Right, exactly. I remember in middle school, one of my science teachers making the joke So, like, not many kids had gotten their periods yet, but making the joke in talking about biology of uh, never trust anything that bleeds for four days and doesn't die. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, that was my seventh grade science teacher. But, yeah, basically, you know, a lot of feminists in this period called into question the construct that allowed something biological happening to women to be linked to a dismissal of their emotions, especially anger, by attributing them to this thing that happens every month. And just the idea that, um, oh, well, she must not be angry most of the time. This is just like a problem she's having this week. Or if you encounter a woman who is upset, irritable, whatever other synonym you would like to fill in that blank. And the first question is, oh, are you on your period? So it allows people to totally discount a legitimate issue or claim or problem um, at the same time that it kind of makes the indirect assumption that men never have either hormonal shifts or problems with it. Yeah. Or if they're. Yeah. But and by the same token, that if they are expressing anger, irritability, that it's valid. Yeah. In a way that ours is irrational. And this was something that Mari Roden talked about in a 1992 paper that she wrote, The Social Construction of Premenstrual Syndrome. And she points out how, going back to that history that we went through in 1896, it was thought that the, quote, madness of the female lunatic becomes more pronounced at the time of menstruation. She also notes how Dr. Katerina Dalton attributed the stereotype of women as poor drivers to PMS. Thank you very much, way Dr. To, Dalton. Yeah, way to not help a sister out. And she describes PMS as a Western, quote-unquote, safety valve. Yeah, and Rodin also cites sociologist Karen Pugliese, who says that this is like when the pressure to, quote, have it all gets symbolically released once a month. Oh, so another excuse to let your, you know, irritation flag fly or an excuse. And also that that permissible mm-hmm. window. And it might have jumped out to some listeners that we've been describing this as a Western construct, because when I was reading this, the question did come to mind of, well, is this universal? Is this really exclusive to Western cultures? Because there are menstrual taboos all around the world and all different sorts of cultures. But it does seem like this particular pathologizing of PMS is fairly Western, especially with when it comes to that sort of moodiness, where a lot of times menstrual taboos are more focused on cleanliness mm-hmm. or the absence thereof associated with the actual bleeding. Yeah, like in some cultures, for instance, you know, women aren't allowed to bathe in the same water. They might interfere with 
the luck of fishermen, you know, yeah. every day. But, you know, it seems like in our culture, a woman who is either on her period or experiencing premenstrual symptoms is a Kathy comic. Well, and it's also it widens the window of instability in terms of, you know, kind of makes women even more unreliable because it's premenstrual. And when could that come? Oh, well, I don't know, two weeks before your period. Who knows? Katerina Dalton went back and revised her. First of all, in the 90s, she said that, you know, PMS isn't even a correct term because this kind of moodiness can strike at any point. And so if we really believe that, then that means that women are really like never reliable because at any point this switch could be flipped and our menstrual effervescence could start to bubble over into insanity and tears and chocolate eating. Well, yeah. And I mean, I think that leads us into talking about PMDD because that's, I think, an even bigger example of the good and the bad in terms of quote unquote legitimizing premenstrual symptoms and and what menstruation does to women because uh, PMDD, premenstrual dysphoric disorder, was listed in the DSM-5, but there was a lot of controversy around it because it doesn't affect that many women, but it does give a basis to diagnose women who are experiencing these symptoms with a mental disorder. Right. And writing about that, Dr. Paula Kaplan, who wrote the book, They Say You're Crazy, talks about how including PMDD in the Diagnostic Statistical Manual means that emotional displays considered normal or fine or whatever in men are seen as mental disorders in women. And she wonders why people aren't calling men's hormonal changes mental illness. Well, menstruation in and of itself makes it easier to draw that link between your biological functioning and your psychological functioning because you have physical evidence of this change going on inside of you, mm-hmm. i.e. menstrual blood, mm-hmm. i.e. your period panties, Caroline, mm-hmm. let's be honest. Um, and we don't want to discount the fact that these kinds of PMDD symptoms do happen. Statistically, 2 to 3% of women experience premenstrual dysphoric disorder and the way it is described um, in one of the articles we were reading about it from one woman who has been diagnosed with PMDD is that she literally becomes another person leading up to her period. Now, once menstruation happens, the symptoms tend to go away. Um, but there was an issue with uh, this drug that was on the market, Seraphim, uh, and the FDA actually had to pull ads for seraphim because it did not disambiguate PMDD from PMS. Essentially, it just it was a commercial of a woman, say, like pushing a grocery cart and having a little difficulty and then going crazy and then being like, maybe you need seraphim. Yeah, so basically the FDA took issue with Eli Lilly, the drug manufacturer, saying like, are you having a bad day? Well, maybe you're crazy and need medicine. Because the whole thing is that the FDA okayed seraphim in 2000. But it's identical to Prozac, which is an SSRI antidepressant, and it was about to go generic. And Eli Lilly wanted to keep making money, so they rebranded it, painted it pink, and called it a PMDD drug. Well, and clearly in this case, too, more research is needed. And and a lot of doctors 
acknowledge that, that more research is needed on this because there is that question of how how to untangle the clinical depression from the menstrual related influencers that seem to aggravate those symptoms of depression. So the question is, which comes first, the PMDD or the depression? Mm -hmm. And researchers still aren't entirely sure. And then taking it a few steps back, like you said, its inclusion in the DSM-5 got a lot of people nervous that, oh, we're just pathologizing this even more. We're pathologizing PMS even more, Mm -hmm. even though what we do need is clearly more research on it. Yeah. And one thing that Kristen and I were talking about when we were researching this stuff is how interesting it is that it is sort of a chicken or the egg situation when it comes to PMDD and to a lesser extent PMS and depression, because researchers have found that the symptoms of PMDD are usually alleviated by SSRI drugs, um, although it, it does differ from woman to woman. And other studies have shown that PMDD symptoms respond well to calcium carbonate, a.k.a. Tums. But it is interesting because, I mean, here are these terrible symptoms that uh, a number of women experience every month that are aggravated every month. But it's so closely tied to depression for these PMDD sufferers. So the fact that we don't know more about what causes it and that we're still having to have the conversation of don't call me crazy just because I have this thing that happens once a month. I mean, I feel like it's 2014. We should know more. Well, and that goes for pretty much anyone who has a period. Don't call me crazy because I have this thing that happens once a month. Oh, yeah. And so and that's why we wanted to do this episode as well, because I know that it made me really think twice about how what I think about periods and how it's framed and how we're taught about Mm -hmm. menstruation and this assumption of PMS specifically with the mood aspect of that and how that impacts women all together because it's not the last thing we need is to say, oh, women, you know, this doesn't exist. Just just buck up. It's just a little bloating. No, clearly, I, I know I know some women who get really regular and very aggressive PMS symptoms. Yeah. I mean, I went to high school with a girl who had to be out of school once a month, like for a day, because she felt so ill. Oh, yeah. The cramping, bloating, fatigue, all that kind of stuff. That stuff is very real and does not need to be legitimized. But the question is, where do we, how do we disentangle that stuff from the stuff that we actually are okay talking about. I just think that Mm -hmm. that's the strangest thing is that we are the least comfortable talking about the, the, the physical symptoms. And yet we're fine making so many jokes about the psychological symptoms. Yeah. But now we want to hear from listeners. What are your experiences with PMS? And also how do we address this question of disentangling the symptoms of PMS that we do experience and are very real and valid from the more socially constructed aspects of it that might do women more harm than good. Mm-hmm. Let us know. Momstuff at HowStuffWorks.com is our email address. You can also message us on Facebook or tweet us at MomStuffPodcast. And we've got a couple of messages to share with you right now. Well, I got a letter here from Scottney about our episode a little while ago on black hair. 
And she writes, I was so excited to hear the curly hair conundrums and black hair episodes because I have both. And not only did you all offer so many great resources on the topic, it was just so nice to hear it being talked about. It's easy even for me to wonder if I'm just being oversensitive about my hair and all my preoccupations about it. I often have to remind myself that it really is more of a complex issue than simple fashion trends, especially when it comes to my professional image, not to mention the dating world. I'm what I like to call Blacksican, Latina mom, black dad, and through my childhood, my curly, frizzy, and seemingly unruly hair was always a huge topic of concern, conversation, and altercations. One of my most vivid memories growing up was the first time I had my hair straightened at a black beauty shop and went to school the next day. I was a sophomore in high school, and I remember everything, what I was wearing, and I remember walking across campus holding my books, looking demurely down because I was sure everyone would be staring at me because finally, I thought, my hair was beautiful. It was actually blowing in the wind, and strands of it would blow across my face, and I was so excited to sweep it behind my ear like all the other girls always did. That was the first day I heard someone tell me, your hair looks so much better straight. And I didn't have a boyfriend or significant other to tell me otherwise until I was out of grad school. Recently, my little sister asked if I thought she should go all natural. And I was so eager to send her videos like I love my hair and links to the Curly Girl Collective to help her see for herself that going all natural is not the social suicide it once used to be. Thanks for all you do. I love the program and recommend it to all the other Peace Corps volunteers I work with. So thanks, Scottney. Okay, and I have a letter here from Megan in response to our vegetarian conversation. Uh, she says, I went vegetarian 10 years ago and then vegan 5 years ago. I did so for ethical reasons, but also gained health benefits, which probably really helped. I also was introduced to feminism through veganism, as I met many feminist vegans who were more than happy to share feminist books and websites with me. I was so inspired, I actually ended up with a gender studies minor when I went back to university and met even more vegetarians and vegans through feminist activism. The two communities always overlapped for me, but it is also a challenge, as you pointed out in your podcast, with issues such as PETA using sexism to try and gain male membership and vegetarianism used as a diet and pushing unhealthy body ideals. I also noticed when a new vegan cookbook comes out, there's often bad reviews left more and more often about how unhealthy it is if it isn't completely fat-free or uses any sugar at all. Recently, a review on Amazon even shamed the author of a favorite vegan cookbook for not being thin and looking, quote, unhealthy. So I've noticed increasing amounts of flack towards ethical vegans and vegetarians from the more health and diet-focused ones for failing to live up to a pretty high standard. From meat eaters, I've gotten a lot of hostility in the past from boyfriends, so the statistic about singles being more likely to be vegetarian makes a lot of sense to me. I've even been asked if my current boyfriend is okay with it and once if he allows it. I found the statistic that women underreport meat eating to be interesting because I've had female friends bring up my vegetarianism to brag about how much meat they eat so they can bond over that with any men in our company, but definitely have noted in my feminist groups at least, most are happy to bond over vegetarian food. Okay, so Megan closes her letter with saying, sorry for making this such a long letter. I enjoyed the podcast very much and your apology, she's writing to me, for bringing up bacon so much. 
is accepted. Smiley face. So thank you for writing in, Megan. And I'm glad you know that I'm joking about all the bacon, although I do love it. But thanks for writing in. And thanks to everybody who's written in to us. Momstuff at HowStuffWorks.com is our email address. And to find links to all of our social media as well as all of our blogs, videos, and podcasts, including this one with links to our sources so you can read along. It's all found over at StuffMomNeverToldYou.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 